0: Section 42 of the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser, Section 42. Campaigning under Botha, 1915, by Cyril Campbell. General Botha's campaign in Southwest Africa began September 27, 1914. When troops of the Union of South Africa entered German territory. On December 25th, Walfish Bay was occupied, and January 14, 1915, Swakopmund fell into Botha's hands. Oss, an important trading station, was next to fall, April 1st, then Warmbad, April 6th, Windhoek, the capital, May 12th, and July 9th. General Botha accepted from Governor Seitz the surrender of all forces in southwest Africa, Hostilities then ceased, and the campaign came to a close. The editor. It is not surprising that the magnitude of the operations in both the European theaters of war should overshadow the campaign which is at present in progress of the German colony of Southwest Africa. Nevertheless, the task which lies before General Botha's troops is no light one. It is no petty colonial expedition as can be judged from the fact with the exception of a Rhodesian contingent and a few frontiersmen. South Africa has sent practically no troops to the help of the mother country. This has been made the subject of malicious comment by a few short-sighted English critics, whereas it really bears out the fact that the Union troops need every man they can place in the field to complete their own share of the work, which the British Empire is engaged. To reduce a country of an area of 320,000 square miles in itself is a big undertaking. But when in addition, that country is protected, not only by trained white troops, but by every natural and artificial barrier. To say nothing of an infernal climate, the difficulties of that undertaking are magnified tenfold. It was a dull morning with streaks of low-lying cloud, and we were stretched out for an after-breakfast smoke, when we heard that peculiar buzzing, humming noise which heralds the approach of a high-powered aeroplane. We could see nothing for the clouds, and though we should have reasoned that it was equally impossible for the pilot to see us through that opaque mass, the presence of that invisible foe overhead made our hearts beat in a very irregular fashion. Unluckily, we had no high elevation guns at the time, and so we all knew that as long as he kept out of rifle fire, we were absolutely at his mercy. It was a most unpleasant experience. Suddenly, a little puff of wind made a big rift in the cloud, and there right above us, at about 5,000 feet, was the Tauba monoplane, exactly like a monstrous bird. For a second or so, we all stared as if fascinated by this grim, ominous thing. Then realization came to us, and I saw men who had never blenched at shrapnel or the murderous hail of machine guns turn pale and lick dry lips with an even drier tongue. Even as I gazed, I saw a tiny object fall from its underside, and to my horror, I could have sworn that it was falling straight on me, though I learned afterwards, from a men hundred yards away, that they had precisely the same idea themselves. The round thing shot down, gradually increasing in size, until it fell about twenty yards from our little group, bursting with a loud report and covering us with sand. One man was killed and three wounded, and then rage somehow mastered our terror. Rage which was only intensified by our knowledge of our own pitiful helplessness. Rifles went off, but it was useless, in quick succession, three other bombs fell. Luckily only one exploded, wounding two more men and killing a mule. Curiously enough, the horses stood the noose of a tractor without showing any signs of stampeding. Then the machine wheeled round, went off at a great pace, and was soon lost to the sight over the distant hills. It was a trying experience and though it is quite true that one soon gets callous to ordinary shell fire and rifle fire, I don't believe that I shall ever view a bombardment from the air with equanimity. Certainly there is less danger than one would expect if one lies flat, but the feeling of the machine lurking above keeps one's terror alive. Next morning, about the same time, the lookout on the observation tank called out, airplane just coming over the neck, the narrow cut in the hills. And as we looked eastward, there sure enough it was, a tiny speck in the sky. During the night, we had hurried up a heavy field piece, and the officer in charge ordered it up, in position. When it had come within range, the gunners let the pilot have it with shrapnel, and the first shell was aimed beautifully. But alas, the fuse had been timed a second too late, and burst when it had passed some fifty yards beyond. Even that distance, I could see the machine rock and sway dizzily, owing to the air concussion. The next second it dropped dead like a stone, probably owing to an air hole caused by the explosion. And I began to realize that fighting in the air must be as terrifying a job for the pilot as it is for the men below, on whom the airmen rain bombs. With great skill, the pilot steadied the machine and at once rose to a great height, just missing two shells, which had been nicely timed, but were aimed too low for his rapid ascent. His narrow escape seemed to have embittered him, for, after making a wide swoop, He came over our camp from the rear and when directly overhead, a position which rendered our field guns useless. He dropped five bombs, three of which exploded, killing as many men and wounding six more. These last two days had shown the Union troops how sadly handicapped they were from the lack of even one aeroplane. In another week, we were to learn that we needed another item of war equipment if our advance was to be pushed on appreciably. It was decided that a station some miles away should be occupied since from there it would be easy to send out some reconnaissance parties and gain an idea of the defenses of AUS. The place was seized next day by a strong party, but owing to the lack of water, it was decided that the main body should retire on 51 kilometre station and that the new post be held at a small party, who should be relieved every other day, the traveling being done mainly by night. On the third day of our occupation, however, a strong reconnaissance force left 81 kilometre station and advanced toward the pass through the hills on the farther side, which lies AUS, standing on the extreme edge of fertile land of the Hincheland. We were greeted by a smart fire, by some machine guns, but after a brisk engagement, we drove their outposts back, and the Germans retired on Aus. For an hour, we scanned the place through field glasses and perceived certain ominous but insignificant-looking mounds of earth close to the town, which looked suspiciously like modern fortifications. Our surmises soon received direct proof, as a minute or two later, the guns, a far heavier caliber than we had given the enemy credit for possessing, spoke and a shell or two exploded uncomfortably near. Further evidence of the remarkable thoroughness of the German military preparations was shown by a great cloud of dust coming up to Aus from the interior, plainly raised by a column of troops along one of the military roads mentioned earlier in the article. It was quite obvious that the outpost with which we had been in contact was connected with headquarters by telephone, and no time had been lost in demanding reinforcements from Kebab or some other port. The proof of these defenses in Aus came as a most unwelcome surprise, as we had no guns capable of demolishing the fortifications and silencing their guns. Their existence, moreover, is only more convincing evidence of the ultimate aim to which the German occupation of this colony tended. Any argument that were constructed for defense against the natives is too absurd, since fortifications equal to any demand against natives could have been constructed at a tenth of the cost and labor necessary to erect these. This discovery, moreover, leads to another and most disconcerting conclusion. If the Germans have taken the trouble to equip in such an elaborate manner Aus, which in itself is not strategically important save as regards its entrance to the Fertile Hinchelen, it is impossible to avoid the deduction of the Keitmanshub, which is the strategical key of the railways and Winhoek. The capital and wireless installation center are even more heavily fortified. After being present at this check on our advance against Aus, I returned to Lüderzbucht and went up in a transport to Walfish Bay, where arrangements were being made for the first attack on Swakopmund, though little real resistance was expected, since it was believed that the town had been evacuated. We out in the evening, and after a march of some sixteen miles, found ourselves on the outskirts of town. We then advanced cautiously, On reaching the main square, we halted, halted suspiciously, for each one of us had an uneasy feeling of imminent danger. Suddenly, the officer in charge cried, Down on your faces, lads! And flung himself flat. And a few seconds later, a hundred yards in front of us, earth heaved up in one awful convulsion. There was a deafening roar and blinding flash. And at the moment, each of us, lying flat though he was, felt as if he had received a stunning blow in the face and on the shoulders. It was the air shock caused by the explosion. Luckily, no one was hurt, and we soon scrambled up and were congratulating ourselves on a narrow escape. I asked the captain in charge of our detachment what had led him to suspect the existence of a landmine, but he could only explain that he felt something was close. At the moment, we thought it had been time to go off at a certain minute, which by sheer luck coincided with our arrival, and it was only the next day we discovered that the wires leading to it and to a second mine, which also exploded harmlessly, came from a little hut three miles inland, from which the Germans must have watched our progress, throwing us again. The two railway lines from Swakabmund, which are linked together by a cross line before the lower one swerves down toward Windhoek, were both destroyed as systematically as the one starting from Luteritzburg toward Aus, and a reconnaissance patrol which had been sent out reported that the same damage was visible as far as they dared advance. Therefore, any progressive movement from this place must be extremely slow. While it was almost certain that the invasion would be held up by the fortification and big guns of Windhoek, in this case the certainty of a similar deadlock along the southern line of advance that is, from Luderitz book to Aus, would mean that both columns would be faced with a siege, although handicapped by the absence of an even pretense of a siege train. The situation was therefore critical, especially as there was always the danger that the remnants of the rebel commandos under Maritz might burst into sporadic activity along the southeastern frontier. Fortunately, this danger was lessened by the complete failure of the rebel attack on Uppington and the subsequent surrender of Kemp. Moreover, it was ascertained from the prisoners taken there that Maritz was not on good terms with German leaders, and that his surrender might be expected shortly. The raids of the rebels, however, had given the general staff an object lesson. Even if they were acquainted with all the waterholes in the German frontier, still the distance from the border to Uppington was greater than that which would have to be accomplished if a flying column were dispatched from Schweit Drift or to Raymond's Drift to seize Warmbad. For such an expedition, Port Nolith would be exceedingly useful as a base of operations on the one side, since supplies could be landed there and then pushed forward to Steinkopf, which is only about 20 miles from Raymond's Drift. In fact, from Steinkopf to Warmbad is only 60 to 70 miles, which could easily be covered by a flying column in two days. From the interior, the concentration of supplies and men is not so easy, and it would entail a lot of trouble to collect enough material at Uppington, once it would have to be transferred to Schwit Drift. 17 miles from there is a place named Noose, where good water can be found and another flying column should manage the 65-mile rush on Warmbad from there easily enough. Once Warmbad is occupied, supplies could be transferred there without much difficulty, and then a gradual advance could be made towards Sleheim, thus cutting the railway communication between Ause and Kietmanshoop and the interior. As the name suggests, Warmbad has some natural springs, so that the water problem which has proved great difficulty in the campaign would have no further terrors. It is certainly true that the military roads inside the Great Railway Loop would still be available for reinforcements and supplies. But with the enormous numerical superiority of the Union troops, it would be a simple matter merely to invest aus. Since the occupation of Seheim, any westward advance on the part of invading force would be through the fertile pastures, which form a startling contrast to the grim and sterile exterior. The split between German leaders and Kemp, Maritz, and the remainder of the rebels, which has already led to the surrender of Kemp, will certainly facilitate the progress of operations, but the ultimate reduction of the country will be, nevertheless, a tedious business. The object of the campaign is not one of territorial aggrandizement, though the acquisition of the country will bring some material reward, since it is not wholly composed of sand and desert, as is popularly believed. Every man, however, who takes part in the work will have the higher satisfaction of knowing that his reward is the accomplishment of duty to humanity. End of section 42. This recording is in the public domain. Read by Carrot, May 13th.